0: Praise God. No? not. All right. Good morning. morning. There we go. This morning, we've got a difficult topic. We're looking at the weight of sin. And our passage, the passage that I've been given to speak from is John chapter 19, and in preparing, I look through all the translations, even the message, and there's no way to sugarcoat this. And I, I know this is a family meeting, and, and we've got a lot of the kids in here, and it's just fantastic to have the kids with us this morning. There's a part of me that initially felt like I'd like to skip over some of the graphic verses. But if I think back to my childhood, And the messages that seriously impacted me when I was young, it's without a doubt the retelling of the events of Good Friday. I hope today's message will impact these young guys and girls in the same way so that some 30, some 40 years down the line, they'll still remember the weight of this story. I heard a lot of messages when I was a kid. I'm a preacher's kid, a PK My sister's here with me this morning. But Good Friday was always the message that had the greatest emotional impact on me. When my dad started retelling the story of Jesus making his way to the cross, I remember sitting there as a kid with tears in my eyes because I'm a creative guy and and I would picture every moment. I would picture the flogging, the whipping. And, and and the description of the cat and nine tails whip that had stones tied into the end of the whip to do maximum damage. I would picture the crown of thorns being shoved into his head and the mocking. I'd picture the slapping. I'd picture the beard being torn from his face. I'd picture the constant mocking and then him being given that 75. Kilogram rugged cross to carry it down the Via Dolorosa as it splintered into his already torn back. The spitting at him, the constant mocking, the nails that were driven into his hands and to his feet. Now, picture all of this and how Jesus would have to push down on the nail in his feet and pull up on the nails in his wrists just to breathe. The vinegar that he was given to drink, the last breath, the piercing spear, and I'd have one word going through my head as a little kid, why, why? Let's read John 19 together, it's a long passage, so bear with me, you won't be able to read it on the screen, I've made sure of that, so next time you'll remember your Bible. (laughs) That's a lie, it's a mistake. Eliza's sin. Okay. John 19. Then Pilate took Jesus and had him flogged. Picture this with me. The soldiers twisted together a crown of thorns and put it on his head. They clothed him in purple. That's okay, I don't need it. And went up to him again and again, saying, Hail, King of the Jews. And they struck him in the face. Once more, Pilate came out and said to the Jews, Look, I'm bringing him out to you to let you know that I find no basis for a charge against him. When Jesus came out wearing the crown of thorns and the purple robe, Pilate said to them, Here is the man. As soon as the chief priests and their officials saw him, they shouted, Crucify! Crucify! But Pilate answered, You take him in crucifying. As for me, I find no basis for a charge against him. Therefore, the one who handed me over to you is guilty of a greater sin. From then on, Pilate tried to set Jesus free, but the Jews kept shouting, If you let this man go, you're no friend of Caesar. Anyone who claims to be a king opposes Caesar. When Pilate heard this, he brought Jesus out and sat him down on the judge's seat, and he sat down on the judge's seat at a place known as the stone pavement, which in Aramaic is Gabbatha. It was the day of preparation of Passover week, about the sixth hour. Here's your king, Pilate said to the Jews, but they shouted, Take him away, take him away, crucify him. Shall I crucify your king? Pilate asked. We have no king but Caesar. What a statement from the religious officials. The chief priests answered, Finally, Pilate handed him over to them to be crucified. So the soldiers took charge of Jesus, carrying his own cross. He went out to the place of the skull, which is in Aramaic, it is called Golgotha. Here they crucified him and with him two others, one on each side and Jesus in the middle. Pilate had a notice prepared and fastened to the cross. It's normally the crime that has been committed. It read, Jesus of Nazareth, the King of the Jews." Many of the Jews read the sign for the place where Jesus was crucified was near the city and the sign was written in Aramaic, Latin and Greek. The chief priests of the Jews protested to Pilate, do not write the king of the Jews, but that this man claimed to be the king of the Jews. Pilate answered, what I have written, I have written. When the soldiers crucified Jesus, they took his clothes, dividing them into shares, one for each of them. With the undergarment remaining, this garment was seamless, woven in one piece from top to bottom. Let's not tear it, they said to one another, let's decide by lot who will get it. This happened that the scripture might be fulfilled which said, they divided my garments among them and cast lots for my clothing. So this is what the soldiers did. Near the cross of Jesus stood his mother, his mother's sister, Mary the wife of Cleopas and Mary of Magdala. When Jesus saw his mother then, the disciple whom he loved standing nearby, he said to his mother. Dear woman, here is your son. And to the disciple, here is your mother. From that time on, the disciple took her into his home. The death of Jesus. Later, knowing that all was now c- completed, and so that the scripture would be fulfilled, Jesus said, I am thirsty. A jar of wine vinegar was there, so they soaked a sponge in it and put the sponge on a stalk of hyssop plant and lifted it to Jesus' lips. When he had received the drink, Jesus said, It is finished. With that, he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. Now, it was the day of preparation. The next day was to be a special Sabbath because the Jews did not want the bodies left on the crosses during the Sabbath. They asked Pilate to have the legs broken so that they could not breathe. They could not pull themselves up to breathe, so they would suffocate. And the bodies taken down. The soldiers, therefore, came and broke the legs of the first man who had been crucified with Jesus and then those of the other But when they came to Jesus and found that he was already dead, they did not break his legs. Instead, one of the soldiers pierced Jesus' side with a spear, bringing a sudden flow of blood and water, scientifically proving that he was dead. The man who saw it has given testimony, and his testimony is true. He knows that he tells the truth, and he testifies so that you may also believe. These things happen so that the Scripture would be fulfilled. Not one of his bones will be broken. And as another scripture says, they will look on the one they have pierced. The burial of Jesus. Later, Joseph of Arimathea asked Pilate for the body of Jesus. Now, Joseph was a disciple of Jesus, but secretly because he feared the Jews. With Pilate's permission, he came and he took the body. He was accompanied by Nicodemus, the man who uh, had visited Jesus at night. Nicodemus brought a mixture of myrrh and aloes, about 75 pounds, taking it with the spices and strips of linen. This was in accordance with Jewish burial customs. At the place where Jesus was crucified, there was a garden, and in the garden a new tomb in which no one had ever been laid. Because it was a Jewish day of preparation, and since the tomb was nearby, they laid Jesus there. This passage paints a very bleak picture of the world, which means... Today's message is going to be appropriately heavy, and I'm probably not going to make many friends this morning because today's story is counter to what the world wants to hear, right? We love our personal comfort, and this passage of Scripture leaves us uncomfortable because it begs the question, why? Why did Jesus, who even the Roman governor Pontius Pilate found innocent of any crime, why did Jesus have to go through all of this? We can blame Judas, well, he betrayed Jesus. We could blame the Romans because they did it to him. We could blame the Jews because they called for it. But at some point, we must turn the blame game around from them and turn it to the world, because what Jesus was going through was not because Rome approved of it, or the Jewish religious leaders of the day requested it, but because the world so desperately needed it, because the world is in such a mess. And then when we're finished blaming the world for being in such a mess, we need to turn the blame game on ourselves. When Mel Gibson directed the scene in The Passion of the Christ, where the nail had to be driven into Jesus' hand, he walked up on set and he took the hammer and the nail himself, and in the movie, it's Mel Gibson's hands hammering, driving that nail through Jesus' wrists, and it was Mel's way of showing that he identified with the Jews, with the Romans, with everybody that had caused the death of Jesus Christ. And just like Mel Gibson, we all need to look at the question, why, and then look deep into our own hearts for the answer. Young people, who's some of the kids here, why did Jesus die on the cross? Ben? For whose sins? The Roman sins. For for the Jewish, whose sins? Who are our, who's us? It's me and you, hey? You see, it's me and you. You see, it's personal. He he died to save us from our sins. The why lies in you and me. So this morning, we're going to deal with three things. We're going to deal with sin, we're going to deal with guilt, and we're going to deal with the guilt offering, sin. We don't like to use the word sin anymore, do we? Uh, We've got categories, though, uh, like maladjustment neurosis, deficiency, and addiction. As we've shifted into a culture of self-regard, it's become difficult to talk about sin without losing one's audience. There's no denying that evil is rampant. I mean, if you turn on the news and watch the news or read the paper, it can often put you into like a state of anxiety or depression because the bad news just never ends. We recognize that there's evil. It's wicked, out there, but we don't want to look too closely at sin, what sin is, in case we find out that it's wicked in here too. Uh, People magazine in the States featured a part serious, part tongue-in-cheek survey on its readers on, on sin, the subject of sin, and the results were published as a sin Uh <laughs> with each sin rated by a sin coefficient. And the outcome both amusing and very eye-opening. Murder, rape, incest, child abuse, and spying against one's country were as, rated as the worst sins uh, in ascending order. While smoking and swearing and pirating movies, well, they were at the bottom of the list. Parking in a handicapped bay was surprisingly high. In the index, uh, sex before or outside of marriage, well, that got off lightly, but cutting in front of somebody in traffic was rated as worse than divorce or capital punishment. Overall, the readers admitted to committing at least 4.64 sins a month. You see, many readers, uh, many of the readers and many people, in fact, many Christians misunderstand sin. And in the 1600s, it was the Reformers who saw that sin meant disobedience, rebellion, refusal, turning away. Disobedience, rebellion, refusal, turning away. In other words, they saw sin as relational. The foundational relationship of human life is our relationship with God. And this is broken. And this brokenness shows up in all our other relationships. So sins are not the cause, but the consequence of what is wrong. Sins are not the cause, but the consequence of what is wrong. We like to categorize the good guys and the bad guys, right? But Paul in Romans 5 which we read from earlier, he personifies sin as though it were a reigning monarch, as if sin has won dominion in this world. He depicts sin with its favorite weapons of the law and death, forcibly advancing through the world like an annihilating army. Sin came into the world, and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all men have sinned. Paul says that all have fallen short, the good guys and the bad guys, Paul says we're slaves to sin. Sin is what drives us to being perfectionists, procrastinators, deceivers, abusers, addicts, schemers, bullies, fanatics, adulterers, envious, lustful, greedy, selfish, unkind, gossipers, and all the other manifestations that afflict the human species. But sin is a category without meaning except in reference to God. Sin is a category without meaning except in reference to God. Now, Kelvin and Hobbes have a very endearing way of illustrating this. If you know the comic strip, Kelvin's hurtling down a snowy slope and he's in his sled with his friend Hobbes who's a stuffed tiger toy and, and they have this discussion about sin and Calvin says, I'm getting nervous about Christmas. Hope says, you're worried you haven't been good? Calvin says, that's just the question, it's all relative. What is Santa's definition? How good do you have to be to qualify as good? I haven't killed anybody, that's good, right? I haven't committed any felonies, I didn't start any wars, I don't practice cannibalism. Wouldn't you say that's pretty good? Wouldn't you say I should get lots of presents? Hobes, But maybe good is more than the absence of bad. Calvin, see, that's what worries me. What is Santa's definition of good? What is God's definition of good? How good do you have to be to qualify as good? And who makes that determination? Like Calvin, these questions worry us. They cause anxiety. As Hope says, bad might be more than just falling short of the mark. The story of Adam and Eve shows, that there's, so, shows us that there's something so much more deliberate, something so much more willful and active than just missing the mark. Before a holy God, it isn't just enough to fall back on, well, nobody's perfect, or I misspoke, or we all make mistakes. C.S. Lewis wrote, fallen man is not simply an imperfect creature who needs improvement. He is a rebel who must lay down his arms. To be in sin, biblically speaking, means so much more than wrongdoing. It means being catastrophically separated from the eternal love of God. But we like to sugarcoat sin and we like to deny it, particularly on our own lives. Donald Trump, before the Previous, previous elections, when he uh, became a Christian, he was asked by the press if he had repented, and he said, I have no need of forgiveness. We're not willing to recognize or acknowledge sin in our own lives. And we all know the song Amazing Grace, right? We love to sing it with such gusto. You know, the song is so beautifully and wonderfully composed, and it's just like such an anthem, But do we know what we're singing? Do we know what we're singing? Amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved? Did you just call yourself a wretch? The man who wrote the song was a slave trader who came to see the wickedness of his actions and of the life that he lived. And there's a disconnect, there's an incomprehension between the awe of the slave trader who had been redeemed by Christ and the contemporary modern-day notion of spiritual self-improvement. The joy of the hymn writer, the theme of the song, is specifically that of being released of the burden of sin. But to be released of the burden of sin, we need to be willing to look back at our lives, and we need to be willing to recognize how far we fall short and be positively gutted by what we see. Carl Barth, who had a prison ministry, a ministry to people who had been officially judged and condemned as guilty, based one of his sermons on Ephesians two verse eight. For by grace you have been saved through faith. By grace you have been saved through faith. This amazing grace. And it's not your own doing. It is the gift of God. He illustrated this message by retelling a Swiss legend. You might know it. It's the legend of the rider who, who, who crossed the frozen lake of Constance by night without knowing it. When he reached the other side of the lake, somebody came up to him and told him what he had done, and he broke down horrified. I did what? When? How? What danger was I in? And this is the human situation. When our eyes are open to the gift of grace, we hear, by grace you've been saved in such a moment. We're like the terrified rider, and we look back on our lives and we go, where have I been? Over an abyss in great danger. What did I do? I was doomed and miraculously saved. How? Yeah. How? Do we really live in such danger? Yes, we live on the brink of death. The wages of sin, the result, the consequence, the out, the end coming of sin is death. But we look to our Savior. We look to Jesus on the cross. And do you know for whose sake He's up there. He's hanging there. It's for our sake, because of our sin, sharing in our captivity, burdened with our suffering. He nails our lives to that cross. You see, it's not the man who is lost, it is the man who is saved that can understand he's a sinner. It's not the man who's lost. It's the man who's saved who can understand he's a sinner. How do you know? How do you understand you're a sinner? How do you know that you're a sinner? The natural instinctual reaction to recognizing or admitting or acknowledging you're a sinner is guilt, guilt. Bruner said one of the greatest evidences for the existence of God is the existence of guilt. Now, here's the whole point. The death of Christ on the cross of Calvary that first Easter is very good news for the guilty because, make no mistake, guilt is a dreadful and devastating thing. I wonder how many of us in this room are bearing the effects of guilt, the weight of guilt, Our secular society and its humanistic psychologists, they love to try and solve the problem of guilt. A thousand different ways. But only Jesus can solve the problem of guilt. David, a man after God's own heart. He had committed adultery with Bathsheba and then he had her husband killed on the battlefront line. The result of his sin in the months that followed were physical, emotional, and spiritual Anguish, physical, emotional, and spiritual anguish. Guilt is physical, emotional, and spiritual anguish. David writes about it in Psalm 32. He said of the months he tried to cover up his sin. When I kept silent, my bones grew old, physical, through my groaning all day long, emotional. For day and night, your hand was heavy upon me, spiritual. My vitality was turned into the drought of summer. Martin DeHaan puts it this way, how will guilt affect us? It can affect us physically, with listlessness, imagined illness, real illness, headaches, stomach disorders, pains, and exhaustion. If we try and run from guilt by immersing ourselves in overwork or reckless living, we'll pay a price. Eventually, our bodies will force us to slow down. Guilt is real, and the effects of guilt are real. Guilt can also cause a range of emotional disorders like depression, anger, self-pity, feelings of inadequacy, denial of responsibility. One of the most vital responsibilities of parenting is to help our children resolve the negative and destructive effects of guilt, and that's through the process of confession and forgiveness and restoration. Unresolved guilt will also have spiritual consequences like a sense of alienation from God, an inability to pray, reduced friendship with other believers, inability to read the Bible and benefit from it, the loss of joy, a loss of assurance and authority in your Christian life. You pay a very high price if you choose to remain guilty rather than laying your guilt down at the cross. And finally, guilt will always impact our relationship with others. It can cause a range of negative responses in us, like irritability, the blame game, withdrawal, profuse apologies, inability to relax, self-justification, a refusal to accept compliments, outbursts of anger and temper, deceit and lying. You see, guilt, it soils, it silences, it separates And it saddens. David's entire life was affected by his guilt. It affected him physically, emotionally, spiritually, and relationally. But when God brought conviction through Nathan the prophet, who told this shepherd king the story of the slaughter of a lamb, an innocent lamb, a guilt offering, David, he repented and he confessed his sins and he found forgiveness and healing in a place where unresolved guilt was leading him to self-condemnation and potential suicide, David found release and relief in the Lord, ultimately the good shepherd who would lay down his life for his sheep, the guilt offering. Here's Isaiah's prophecy about Jesus on the cross in Isaiah 53 verse 10. Yet the Lord was willing to crush him, Causing him to suffer. If he would give himself as a guilt offering, an atonement for sin, he shall see his spiritual offspring, he shall prolong his days, and the will, good pleasure of the Lord, shall succeed and prosper in his hands. I want you to understand this guilt offering. The guilt offering is a reference to the guilt offering mentioned in Leviticus 5, in Leviticus 6. It wasn't a fine imposed by a court of law. But a reparation offered by perpetrators who had already gotten away with the offence, but then later felt guilty about what they had committed and the hurt that they had caused—repentance by the sinner, not persecution by prosecution by the authorities—is the basis of the guilt offering. The guilt offering required a sacrifice on the altar. Sin leads to guilt for which atonement must be made. The idea of the guilt offering was that the life of the sacrificed, the life sacrificed bore the judgment of the sin that had been committed so that the guilty party can be set free from the devastation of guilt. And we can find the same this Good Friday. No matter who we are, no matter what we've done, The good news is that this Easter, an innocent lamb named Jesus had had to become the guilt offering for our sins, your sins, and mine. We don't have to spend another day under the burden of guilt. There is no pillow as soft as a clear conscience. At the start of this message, we asked the question, why? 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 What sort of predicament are you and I in that we should require the crucifixion of the Son of God? So catastrophic a remedy demands a catastrophic predicament. The crucifixion of Jesus was of such magnitude that it demands a concept of sin that is large enough to match it, irredeemable darkness. The weight of sin was so great that nothing in heaven and earth was weighty enough, except for the self offering of the Son of God, submitting to the torture and shame of dying on the cross. That was the price of atonement. So, what do we do? How do we respond? I've got two tattoos. I can already hear the voices. Isn't that a sin? The one on my wrist, um, my wife and I, my wife and best friend, uh, we both got these on our wrists when I came back from doing a story in Egypt on the persecuted church just after the Muslim Brotherhood had taken over and uh, I can tell you the whole story another time, but when I got my tattoo, we were sitting there, and the, the tattoo artist said, "What would you like?" And I just drew this sketch of two little crosses, uh, one big one and one smaller one next to it, and she kind of traced that sketch and put it on my wrist and now it's my tattoo, and I kind of wish I had an artist do it, because it's kind of sketchy. Um, but I own it, because it's my testimony. You see, when Jesus died on that cross, there was a sinner on either side. Hmm. Luke twenty-three thirty-nine to 43. this. There was a sin on either side, but there was one sinner that mocked Jesus, and there was another sinner that did three things right. He recognized Jesus was innocent. He said, can you not see that this man has done nothing wrong? And he recognized that he was not innocent, he said, but we have. And then he recognized that Jesus was going somewhere. He recognized that this death was not the end, and he said to Jesus, will you remember me? I want to be that guy. That's my story. I want to be that guy. I want to remind myself of that. Jesus was innocent. I'm not. He died for my sins. And I get eternal life, not because of anything I've done, but because of what He did for me that day on the cross. Jesus, remember me. It's that simple. Have you said that? Maybe you've never taken that step before. Maybe you've never truly admitted these things. But right now, your heart is on fire. Can you see sin for what it really is? Can you see the effects of guilt in your life? Are you willing to admit that you're not in a right relationship with God right now? Are you ready to take that stand, that step? There's gonna be an opportunity to do that in a few moments. You see my second tattoo, which I can't show you, it's on my shoulder, and it says, tetelestai, tetelestai, it is finished. It's the last thing Jesus said on the cross. The job I came to do, it is done. A better translation of that is mission accomplished. I came as a guilt offering. I came to restore. I came to heal. And by offering up my life to anyone who believed, they could be with me for eternity. What a relief. It's over. The battle over sin and death has been won on that Good Friday. Peace comes from a right relationship with God. And as we come before the communion table now, and we take the bread and the wine, here's a unique opportunity where we can prayerfully make our peace with God. As the band gets ready and starts to play, I'm going to invite Georgia up on stage to read us a poem. What was once made with beauty has now been destroyed. Where there was once singing, there is now crying. Where there was once peace, there is now war. The innocent die and the wicked get away with murder. Sin has taken over every heart. A king has to die, a sacrifice. A crown of thorns on his head. His hands and feet nailed to a tree. On the cross, placed between two criminals. He is pierced in his side. And he cries out to his father, who has turned away. The king breathes his last breath, and the veil is torn. It is finished. The innocent Messiah is dead. That sin on the cross said to Jesus, will you remember me? And you know what? Jesus has given us a command too, and that's to remember him. Every time we do this, every time we share communion, we're to remember him and we're gonna enter a moment of just a bit of silence and then we're gonna sing together. On the night he was betrayed, Jesus was in the upper room celebrating the Passover feast with his disciples. After taking the bread and giving thanks, he broke it and he gave it to them. And he said, do this in remembrance of me. And then he took the cup and he said, this cup is the new covenant by my blood which is poured out for you as the band plays on, won't you take the cup that you've been given, take the bread and then have that sip of of wine, of grape juice, and just remember Mm. Him.